instituted Boy Scouts. The day started out pretty well. Sixteen backpackers had been dropped off at the Hermit Creek Trail head near the west end of the Grand Canyon on Monday morning, ready to descend over the edge some 13 miles to the first night's camp. Dave McLean and I were the leaders for this year's Hermit Creek hiking group. My specialty is atmospheric science, so I typically talk about the ice age, clouds, ice crystals, sunlight, weather, and climate, and today before and uh, today and before the Genesis flood. I was the principal leader, so I gave most of the devotions and general directions. Dave McQueen is a geologist and a devoted rock collector. Dave takes his rock so seriously that he carries all kinds of equipment to test rocks when he backpacks in the Grand Canyon. He wears a bright red vest with multicolored patches indicating where he had traveled pockets for his maps, other pockets to hold pencils and pens, and things like a magnifying glass, and bottles of acid dangling from loops. Dave lectured on geology and implications of the flood. We had both led groups into the Grand Canyon several times before, but neither of us had ever been down this particular trail. We had studied the topographic and trail maps thoroughly, And because we were both experienced backpackers, we didn't have a great concern about reaching camp by nightfall. However, because we didn't yet know the capabilities of this particular hiking group, we wanted to get started as soon as possible to be sure we reached the campsite at a reasonable hour. We had several lecture stops to make along the way. We needed to stop about 30 minutes down the trail to show the group an outstanding example of amphibian tracks in the Coconino sandstone. These tracks just off the trail would allow us to make final adjustments to packs and offer suggestions on how to avoid foot blisters and sore shoulders from the packs. The only hint that we might have a problem with this group was when Dan Oglesby insisted that he had he be allowed to carry a 50-pound pack. No matter how much we tried to convince him that he would enjoy the week much more with a lighter pack, Dan was a short, stocky salmon fisherman from Anchorage, Alaska, who insisted that he was used to carrying heavy loads and roughing it in the outback. Unfortunately, we found out later that he had never backpacked before, and all of his food was canned. Based on our experience with Dan, all future backpackers are now required to complete a full pack inspection and limit their weight to no longer than, no more than 40 pounds for men and 30 pounds for women. Before starting down the trail, Dave McQueen led the group in calisthenics, and I gave a short devotional on Moses in the wilderness. Many devotionals in the Grand Canyon focus on rocks, trees, and dry places, It seemed appropriate to use objects near at hand to illustrate spiritual truth when camping. It's no wonder Christ used so many object lessons when he traveled around Israel. As we exercised and had devotions, we became somewhat more familiar with the group of ten men, four women. Two of the middle-aged men had brought their wives, and two remaining women were single and in their thirties. Fran, one of the single women, 
was a medical doctor, although she preferred that the group not know that it is difficult for medical people on backpacking trips because if it is known that they are doctors or nurses, the group will sometimes expect medical advice on problems of all sorts, including minor accidents during the trip. Medical liability also comes into play if they assist. If they prefer to remain anonymous, we don't inform the group about the presence of medical personnel on backpacking trips unless a medical emergency occurs. Two of the young single men in the group, Bob and Jim, were cross-country runners. They were outstanding condition. Both were thin, wiry, and full of energy. In fact, as we descended the trail later in the day, they asked permission to go on ahead of the group to a fork in the trail where they would wait for us. However, when we were somewhat late in arriving, they dropped their packs and ran back the trail to meet us, and then ran back down the trail again. I figured they added at least 10 miles to the full distance of 13 miles, just jogging back and forth. Oh, for the strength of my youth. By about 10 o'clock, we were able to start down the trail. This was two hours later than we had hoped. The bus had been late dropping us off because of the delay caused by other hiking groups getting to the Bright Angel and Grandview Trails on the east end of the Grand Canyon. Calisthenics, the devotional and picture-taking, had delayed us another hour, but finally we were on our way. We hadn't gone more than a 100 yards when one of the group lost his bedroll and Lisa was having pain in her shoe. We stopped to refasten the bedroll and look at Lisa's foot. It turned out that the foot pain was from a new pair of shoes which hadn't been broken in. Although we discourage anyone from wearing new shoes on our trips, there's always someone who doesn't get that word. We decided to cut some moleskin for Lisa's foot to avoid blisters. Moleskin is a wonderful soft material that can be purchased at most sporting goods stores. It has soft cotton material on one side and an adhesive on the other. It can be cut with scissors and fit in fit to toes, heels, and other places on one's feet to prevent and alleviate blisters or other sore spots. Moleskin has the, been the theme of many songs written on our hiking trips in the Grand Canyon and often comes becomes a highly sought-after commodity near the end of a week of hiking. Moleskin and toilet paper are sometimes called mountain money. It took about 15 minutes to cut the patches and fit them to Lisa's feet before we were off again. As we traveled downward, we passed through layers of kebab limestone, the Toro Weep formation, and into the top layers of the Coconino sandstone. As all hikers are expected to learn the names of the layers by heart as they descend. In some years, we have sold t-shirts with rock layers printed on the front so hikers can review the names as they face each other. Each layer of rock has its own significance. The kebab, kebab, kebab limestone is filled with fossils of marine organisms, particularly brachiopods. These are bivalved shell creatures which were common in oceans of the past. It is fascinating that marine organisms are abundant over miles of desert where there's little water today. But the fossils and limestone which make up the rock apparently precipitated from an ancient sea.
However, an instruction from our leaders offers a young earth, catastrophic explanation for the formation of these layers rather than the conventional millions of years explanation. Dave McQueen, our geologist, explained from the waters of the Genesis flood swept marine organisms and seawater from the North American continent, depositing sediments and fossils over widespread areas. These sediments later solidified and formed layers like the Kebab limestone layer. As we walked down through the Coconino sandstone, it became evident that the floodwaters had moved a tremendous quantity of sand in forming this layer. This white formation is 300 to 400 feet thick near the center of the Grand Canyon. It can be seen just below the lip of the entire canyon when looking from almost any viewpoint. Some call this layer the bathtub ring of the Grand Canyon because it can be seen so clearly all the way around the Great Depression. These layers of sandstone are not only present in the Grand Canyon in Arizona, but also extend into California, New Mexico, and Texas, as well into Utah and Nevada. Such an extensive, homogeneous layers would argue for massive disposition of sand in a single, large-scale event like the Genesis Flood. In fact, when I first hiked the Grand Canyon and looked up at the Coconino sandstone layers from a position along the Bright Angel Trail, I was impressed with the magnitude of the catastrophic magnitude of the catastrophe, which would have been required to move so much material over such a large area. I became convinced of the global nature of the flood due to this one piece of evidence alone. Embedded in the walls of the Coconino sandstone are not only horizontal lines separating the various strata as sand laid down to form the rock, but also inclined, cross-bedded lines. The conventional long-age geological explanation for this cross-bedding is the layers of sand were formed in dunes by wind on an ancient desert. The steepness would have been better explained by dunes forming under moving water. In other words, these dunes seem to have been formed over hundreds of feet of water moving across the seafloor. The image of water hundreds of feet deep, hundreds of miles in lateral extent, moving at speeds of up to tens of miles per hour, boggles the mind, but the evidence supports it. Partway through the Coconino sandstone layer, we stopped to look at footprints left in the sandstone by ancient amphibians. About 20 feet off the trail, we located a large inclined rock with animal tracks embedded in it. There were several sets of tracks, but the most impressive trail was about 10 feet long. The tracks were about six inches apart with an occasional line between them, suggesting the animal was a type of amphibian dragging its tail. In many locations, these trails show the animal climbing the sand dune at an angle to the flow of the current across the dune. The animal apparently swam from the top of the dune to another because of missing tracks on portions of the dune. The fact that the footprints remained in the rock is somewhat of a mystery. It would appear that the tracks must have been immediately covered by fresh deposits of sand, which came in pulses. When the rock was exposed 
later, exposed later, the layers eroded preferentially at the interface between the pulses exposing the tracks. This explanation would seem to imply that there may be many trackways still embedded in the rock, but have yet not been exposed. Another fascinating mystery is why there are living animals leaving footprints so late in the flood. The Coconino sandstone is about 4,000 feet above the lowest sedimentary layer in the Grand Canyon. If almost a mile of sediment had been laid down by the flood, how could some animals still be alive? Dinosaur tracks, which are often found in the Morrison Formation, are located at even higher levels in the geologic strata. It would appear that some animals were able to escape the waters until later in the flood. Many were strong swimmers, but they may have migrated to higher ground or clung to floating vegetation and were only killed later as the waters finally reached them. Dr. John Baumgartner, a research scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory, has suggested that circulating water inundating the continents may have formed giant whirlpools with dry floors near the center until late in the flood. This may have allowed animals near the center of the continents to initially escape the floodwaters, but were then overwhelmed when the events of the flood reached their zenith. It had taken our hikers about an hour to reach the tracks in the Coconino sandstone, and by the time we had lectured on the formation of the rock strata and the features of the reptile tracks, it was almost noon. We decided to break out our lunches and eat before continuing on down the trail. I noticed that Dan was not eating his lunch, so I inquired if he was hungry. He said he didn't feel like eating and would wait until a little later to have his lunch. He was adjusting his straps on his backpack, so I didn't think about think more about our conversation. I encouraged everyone to drink plenty of water. It's easy to, in a dry climate like Arizona to forget to drink enough water. The body tends to lose a lot of water by perspiration, even though it isn't evident by the moisture on the skin. Some had brought powdered Gatorade mixed with the water in their canteens, and I encouraged its use. Along with the loss of water, the body also eliminates minerals like sodium, potassium, and magnesium, which can lead to a heat stroke. After a short lunch, we, dis- we started down the trail again. By this time, the temperature was approaching 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and most of the group had been put on sunscreen to avoid sunburns. The next part of the trail had been eroded badly, with many small round pebbles lying on top of rock. The... Footing was very difficult with several of the group sliding and falling from time to time. After about five miles of this unstable footing, some of the group were beginning to tire. In particular, Dan was at the tail end of the group and having difficulty keeping up. I usually stay near the back of the group to help the stragglers and encourage them to keep moving. Dave McQueen had been hiking near the center of the group because he tends to stop often to explore various rock outcrops and lecture the group on geological features. Bob and Jim, our two cross-country hikers, were becoming frustrated with the slow pace of the group, so I gave them permission to continue on alone down the junction of the trail where it forked to the right toward our campground for the night. The fork was about 10 miles from the trailhead we had left earlier in the morning. By the time 
We were within three miles of the junction. Bob and Jim had ran back uphill to the group and were prancing in place while we slowly prodded downward. They ran back and forth several times between the junction and the group in the time it took us to reach the fork in the trail. They told me later they normally run about 25 miles each day, just the same shape. The afternoon heat was beginning to tell on Dan. He was going extremely slow and was having to stop from time to time for rest. But by the time the group had reached the junction, it was supper time, so we decided to stop and eat. We still had three miles to go to reach camp for the night. It was becoming evident that we had a problem. David McQueen offered to stay with Dan and walk slowly with him, and I agreed to lead the main group into the camp. Night fell about a mile from the junction, and we had to break out flashlights in order to see our way in the dark. I had never hiked the canyon in the dark, particularly at the unfamiliar trail, but unfortunately, but fortunately, the trail was well marked, and we had, and we made it to camp without any incidents. However, when we got to camp, we had difficulty finding the group campsite. We were so tired from the long day and 13-mile hike that after 15 minutes of hunting for it unsuccessfully, I finally gave permission to set up camp near the base of the cliff that looked like it might be the correct spot. After we settled into camp and rested for a while, Bob and Jim came over to the tent and asked if I could see Dave McQueen and Dan. I said that they hadn't shown up yet. They offered to go back up the trail and look for them if I wished. I told them to wait another half hour, and if Dan, Dave and Dan hadn't showed up by then, they could go check on them. By 9.30, they still hadn't appeared, so Bob and Jim went to look for them. They came back an hour later and reported that Dan had become ill and couldn't continue. Dave had decided to camp on the trail for the night and come into the camp in the morning. Since there was little any of us could do for them, I decided to proceed with the regular group activities and waiting for them to arrive the next day. Unfortunately, in the morning light next day, it became evident that the campsite we had selected was an eighth of the mile from the group campsite was actually located. So we had to move our tents. Since we were going to stay at this site for two or more nights, rather than taking down the tents, we just pulled up stakes and carried the tents on our heads. That must have been quite a sight, watching a line a dozen multicolored tents moving in a single file from trail along the trail from one campsite to another. It probably looked like something like a centipede bumping along the trail. By about 9 a.m., Dave and Dan arrived. We helped Dan get his tent up, and he immediately crawled into it and stayed there for the next four days. He apparently caught the flu on his way to the Grand Canyon from Alaska, was fully involved by the time he was partway down the trail. We kept him hydrated by carrying bottles of water to his tent, but he didn't eat until the last night we were in camp. Fortunately, we had some expert medical help in Fran, who assisted him in the situation, or we might have had to call for a helicopter rescue. Not long after Dave and Dan rejoined the group, a park ranger walked into the campground and asked for the group leader. When he was directed to me, he asked if we had any Boy Scouts in our group. I told him no and asked why he wanted to know. He said that a camper had just hiked from his campground to the next camping area beyond the junction and had passed two people camped on the trail. The hiker had reported to the ranger station near the second camping that 
There appeared to be two bit two dead Boy Scouts on the trail. However, in hiking over the same path to reach our camp, the two were no longer there, and he was trying to locate them. After a few moments of confusion, I realized he was talking about Dave and Dan. The two dead Boy Scouts were Dave and Dan. The uh, hikers had seen Dave's red vest with the multicolored patches and odd-attached geologic equipment on it while he slept on the trail and mistook him for a Boy Scout. They were sleeping so soundly that they appeared to be dead. When I explained to the ranger who the dead Boy Scouts were, he didn't find it amusing, but wanted to write us a citation for camping in an unapproved area. After explaining how Dan had become ill and we decided to allow him to remain on the trail overnight until he improved somewhat, the ranger reluctantly agreed not to cite us. However, he sternly warned us not to allow anyone to camp on the trail again, or we would face a stiff fine. I learned later from Dave McQueen that there was a lot more to the story than first met the eye. Apparently, the park ranger who had almost given us the citation, had been having problems with groups of hikers who reported Dave and Dan as dead Boy Scouts. The ranger had found them swimming naked in the Colorado River the previous day, revoked their permits, and fined them each $100. They were on their way out of the canyon in a foul mood, and when they passed Dave and Dan asleep on the trail because they were angry at the ranger, they decided to report Dave and Dan to the ranger in order to force him to make the prolonged walk several miles down to the trail to our campsite. When the ranger arrived at our campsite, he had already been through several confrontations. Fortunately, after several minutes of discussion and explanations, he had he became reasonable and treated us professionally. The remainder of the trip was enjoyable for all except Dan Oglesby, who remained in his tent all week. He finally improved on Friday evening, the night we were going to hike out again. By the time he had grown hungry, and by that time he had grown hungry and he was ready to eat a hearty meal. However, even a salmon fisherman could not eat the 20 pounds of canned foot he brought in his backpack. In order to lighten his pack for the trip to the top, we passed around his cans of stew, smoked salmon, and baked beans to share among the group. Dan made it out of the canyon and is today remembered as one of the two dead Boy Scouts.